Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Karee Peterson-Smith, who is the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. He researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration, graduated from Clark University and Graduate School of Geography in Massachusetts after completing a dissertation that focused on militarism and sovereignty. He is one of the co-authors and organizers of the 2015 Black Solidarity with Palestine Statement, which has signed by over 1,100 black activists, artists, and scholars. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Really honored. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. you. So you're in D.C.? I'm actually in Boston now. Oh, you are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask how things have been over the last... Uh, over the last week or so, what has it been like in your neck of the woods? Would yeah, you know, Boston is um, it's all right. We're we're a little um, we're insulated in some ways from some of the like kind of harsher things happening in this country right now. We have a Republican governor who is, um, uh, you know, like neoliberal tool, um, <laughs> but but he is not like a trump republican you know what i mean and so he's constantly distancing himself um from trump and it's actually it's really interesting because it it just it shows how much it matters when people in power amplify you know that fascist message it really puts wind in their sails and i think it's more challenging for for them when that's not the case so so, you know, in, in that way, um, things are not uh, the very worst, but, you know, Boston is an, it's an unaffordable city, like so many cities in this country and in this world. Um, you know, COVID has been hitting certain communities harder than others. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard. It's very intense. So we're, we're all part of this, you know, whatever kind of... Um, degree that that we're dealing with it yeah. <laughs> the various aspects of this time we're all we're all dealing with a really difficult situation you know 100 percent. are you originally from boston i actually grew up in upstate new york oh, um, okay but i've lived here for a long time now i've lived here like half my life and um and uh you know i wanted to live here um since when i was a kid i mean i love i love upstate new york too kind of claim dual citizenship um <laughs> right on what part of upstate new york i'm from albany okay right on yeah right yeah on. so not too far from here actually is um, that where you got first engaged with political work yeah you know Albany's a small city but there's some really like when i was growing up there were some really rad activists who were doing really great stuff and um you know, first of all, there, there's a lot of bad stuff happening as, as uh, you know, is the case all across this country. And I remember when I was in high school, like police violence was rampant. And, um, you know, I got to see a bit of that. And, um, and I learned about, um, I learned about uh, Palestinians and the kind of oppression that Palestinians were experiencing um, in Palestine. And even though I didn't, I didn't know Palestinian folks, you know, in my little, my little hometown, um, that really, that really, um, politicized me, you know? Um, and I was able to connect up with these activists at this, there's this really, this really cool place called the Social Justice Center in Albany. And these were activists who were, who were active, they were, they were veterans of previous movements. And 
in particular, the ones who I ended up connecting with were involved in the um, Central America solidarity struggles of the 1980s. Right you on. Know? Right on. So, like, yeah, I feel really lucky to have kind of just encountered those folks and that that helped help me get political and get active. Was your was your family political? Not terribly political, you know, but they were like my parents. My parents aren't activists, but they were shaped by, you know, the 60s and 70s that they grew up in. Right. And so like th- that that time so politicized everyone. And um, I've thought a lot about that, actually, you know, as somebody who is an activist, who is, um, you know, uh, in my, my, my sort of day job is as a scholar and not just my day job, but my, my life's work, I guess, yeah. is kind of <laughs> studying and interrogating U.S. empire and um, building solidarity. But I'm also an organizer, you know what I mean? And that's what I learned um, when I was in college, how to organize people. And I've thought a lot about, like, what what it means when um when you know it's not just the kind of most committed people who get active but a movement politicizes like you know many layers of people kind of radiates out and it impact has an impact well beyond that core and i think that my parents are absolutely examples of that and i'm so i'm grateful for them i mean they they weren't activists, but they, you know, they taught me about the civil rights movement. They taught me really cool stuff about black history in particular. Um, and I'm also just grateful for the era that they came up in, you know, um, because that shaped them. And then even though I didn't grow up in that era, it shaped me. Yeah. Did, um, I was going to ask how long you've been with IPS and what were some of the kind of like movements or organizations you might've worked with before becoming a a full-time scholar? Yeah, so um, I've been with IPS for a couple of years now, and, um, you know, the anti-war movement was um, was really formative for me. I should say, I should say that, um, and I, I started to kind of get at this when I was talking about being in high school and learning about the struggle for Palestine, um, but, like, there were all these, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no shortage of injustices kind of in this place and in my immediate, you know, experience <laughs> to kind of make me political. Right. But, but actually like so much, um, so much of what shaped my worldview was things happening outside of my experience, you know, but that connected with it. And so it was like, yeah, learning about Palestinians fighting for freedom. It was learning about Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico fighting against the U S Navy. Um, you, you know, uh, there was this long struggle, this island that's part of Puerto Rico called Vieques, which was like a, um, a test, they, the Navy used to test weapons and stuff. And that really like politicized me. And then um, when the, um, the U.S. invaded Iraq um, and, and Afghanistan, you know. How old so were you then, Curry? I was, um, I was in college when that happened. Okay. And um, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty wild because my college, um, Rochester Institute of Technology, I'm going to name it. You know, yeah. was it, like so many schools like it, it. It plays a very active role in the military machine. And um, there's this kind of 
history at RIT of a um, that's a bit more clandestine where it was revealed in the um, at some point in the 90s that like the president of RIT was actually a CIA agent while he was the president. And so there's all this clandestine stuff happening. But but when, you know, when the war on terror started, they were very openly celebrate. We are so proud to be making weapons right. on our campus, you know. Um, and so I learned a lot because um, I not only learned a lot about how how the military, how U.S. militarism is so beyond the formal military, right? It, it, there's all these other institutions that are enlisted as part of it. But then I also, like, I learned a lot about, um, in both good ways and bad ways, about what it means to live in a country that is so, so militarized. You know, I, I just remember, like, you know, being an organizer and, and setting up a literature table and talking to students about like, hey let's stop the war and i remember talking to kids who were like you know what i'm on my way to class to learn how to design missiles right. so i'm pretty psyched about the war right and i'm like yo <laughs> okay um and i i guess um i hope this this gets at your question a bit but like it's it's made me you know there was a point like like look i i think it's extremely important to build solidarity amongst folks here with folks elsewhere who are on the receiving end of U.S. violence, you know, and violence that the U.S. funds and supports, you know, in Iraq and Palestine in Afghanistan, you know, all, all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a point, you know, once I, um, once I kind of committed to really studying how U.S. empire works, I thought a lot about, like, what does it do to this place, actually? like to just be at war forever yep. you know um and i should say that another another formative you know as i was learning about palestine um and puerto rico like i was learning about um just the colonization of this place and the theft from native americans and indigenous resistance and it's like that is that is the context from which the united states emerges as a project mm -hmm. and it's just been non-stop ever since and then so Anyway, all of that, you know, um, I think pointed me to ultimately getting to work at IPS and, and I feel really lucky. Um, it, I feel really grateful to somebody named Phyllis Bennis who's been on your show before. Yeah. And um, when I was a student doing anti-war organizing, you know, I would read her scholarship and now I get to work with her. So I feel really lucky. It's really cool. I have had the same experience with many people that I used to look up to when I was first getting involved with the anti-war movement. And it's really neat. It is really cool to finally like work hand in hand with people you might have looked up to for years. It is. Yeah. It's a cool experience. Um, why don't you, before we get into some current events, why don't you kind of tell folks what IPS is and, and sort of the work that IPS does? Yeah, good question. Because it's, you know, it's funny because I guess it's, it's, a, it's a think tank and like there's a million of those in Washington. And um, when I got, you know, when I, when I got the job and I moved to Washington, um, when I started out working at IPS, I got a sense of just the role that think tanks play in shaping U.S. policy. You know, I mean, people in Congress get on the floor and they articulate the policy, but that stuff's really developed in the think tanks, you know? Right. And what's unique about IPS is that it was created to be a think tank for social movements, you know? So, you know, the idea is that, you know, the idea behind think tanks is that um, 
this is the, the generous, the generous description of a think tank, <laughs> right? Is that like policymakers don't have time to, um, you know, have like super in-depth knowledge of all these things, of all these, these the different things that, that inform policy. And therefore you need people whose job it is to kind of think about this stuff and distill the best ideas. Um, to inform policy. Again, that is the very generous um, <laughs> art. There's nothing about who is funding those think tanks, the corporation, right. Right. the um, various governments around the world, um, etc. But, you know, if, if we take that idea and, and say, okay, you know, for social movements, for activists, you know, activism is, is there's so many different aspects to it, but it is hard work organizing people, you know? Yep. And so, yeah, what if, what if a bunch of us, our role could be to take that time and space and um, get to do some scholarship and some investigation and some reflection and talking to, you know, like, like very intentionally talking to um, uh, other activists or other scholars um, and trying to, again, gather some of the best lessons and knowledge that can inform the social movements. And, you know, of course, activists themselves you know, our intellectuals, you know, our scholars, but um, yeah, to get to play that role to be like, you know what, I want to write a whole report on this thing. Or like, you know, yesterday, actually, I was looking through um, last year's military budget. Um, it's called the National Defense Authorization Act. And, you know, I found some really interesting stuff in there about what gets funded and what doesn't get funded. You know, not everybody, not all activists have the time to comb through this yep. yeah. <laughs> this document, right? So that's the idea behind IPS. And we we do, you know, I work on the kind of foreign policy end of things, um, but we do foreign and domestic policy. Right on. I think one of the things that I would like to see is more, we talk about it locally all the time. So in a place like where we're located in Northwest Indiana, we have some commuter campuses. Uh, South Bend is about an hour away from us. So we're like kind of in this no man's land of, there's not really too much research or studying happening. Um, mm. But the thing is with the way the economy is today too, and the amount of people out of work who have like advanced degrees who can kind of do that work, like sit at home and do it. As you mentioned, we obviously encourage as much organic intellectualism as possible. Like we believe right. everybody has the capacity to do that. But to your right. point, there's some people who might just have more time and like specific skill sets to do it. And I think regional think tanks uh, are something that like we've been mm -hmm. kind of mulling over for a while, because as you know, there are national issues that filter down to all of us and we're all impacted differently depending on who you are and where you're located. But then there's also so many sort of local, specific local and regional issues that, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be really helpful for people, I think, at the local and regional level to be able to develop their own studies and research. But it's something that I've thought about for a long time. Like, I wish, in other words, we had an IPS in, like, every corner right. of every state in the U.S. is what I would like to say. Right. I, I love that. And I, um, I mean, I love it for so many reasons. You know, one, one being, you know, we have some real challenges in the society. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we got a lot to figure out. Um, about how to make a more just, more equal, more livable, you know, more survivable, sustainable um, society. And um, it's going to take a lot of thinking. Yeah. So, um, and, and there's this thing, you know, the U.S. is really the kind of dominant institutions and culture of the U.S. is very hostile to um, 
intellectual engagement, you know? It's like when, um, you know, when I was studying, um, what I was studying in school, which is like, you know, militarism, um, you know, people are like, I, I, I have people who are like, well, you know, you, you can get paid doing that? Like, what, does, that, does that work really matter is kind of the, the question, right? And that's true, that's so true with, with all kinds of scholarship. And, you know, there's, of course, there's this, these tropes of, you know, making fun of English majors or philosophy majors as though it's not useful to, to like reflect on language and on thinking, right? Right. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's super important. And the, the other piece is like, you know, I, I really believe that social change is possible like at every level of society. And like cities and towns and rural spaces are really important sites of generating, you know, new possibilities and experimentation. Like, um, so I think about that a lot about what, what becomes possible locally and regionally. And I love the idea of people very intentionally saying, let's think about this and let's, let's facilitate thinking because there's lots of people who are thinking, right? And, yeah. yeah. And institutionalize it. I mean, the thing for us right. is like building organizations and institutions that can outlast this time period, our lives, you know, something that lasts well beyond us. And I think that's really important, just that intentionally building an infrastructure that can support these kind of efforts for the long term. You know, so in yeah. other words, I'm not interested in like starting a regional think tank so it disappears in three or four years when the grant money runs out. It's like, how do right. we develop a, a think tank? Uh, that can last here 30, 40, 50 years, I think is really right. the, the question. And yeah. to your point about these areas, look, we, I mean, Sergio and I, who you can't see is behind the camera here, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, we opened our community center here in Michigan City in 2016 be, for basically that very reason. I mean, after right. seeing the election results, you know, all of our friends who we had been mobilizing with for, at that point, about 11 years doing anti-war work and environmental organizing and different things, they were like, come to Portland come to Seattle. Right. They're like, right. come to San Francisco or Oakland. They're like, get the hell out of there. And we're like, look, like for us, the lesson of 2016 was you cannot allow this kind of these white power movements, these right wing hyper nationalist movements to, to sort of ferment here. And just to like, you know, just let it kind of fester because if there's yeah. not an alternative, you know, what fills that vacuum. And, you know, we, we kind of saw that on Wednesday. Exactly. But that, that was our thinking behind it, is like you cannot allow huge swaths of this country to just go. Um, it, it just doesn't make it to me doesn't make political sense. I'm not sure what you think about that. But I like I, I'm encouraged by Georgia. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, not probably everything somebody like you and I would want, but still a, a really positive move. And if you listen to the organizers on the ground, something that people have been working on for like eight to 10 years, progressive black churches, uh, black student organizations, labor unions down there. I mean, it was really an amazing effort. I was, it was a shame to me, the biggest, one of the biggest shames about Wednesday was that it overshadowed the great work that was done in Georgia the night before. Yeah. That actually upset me probably just as much as, as anything else. Yeah, that's so real. I mean, there really is, um, man, I mean, there are just these, uh, I don't know, like these, these, these caricatures of whole sections of the country, you know what I mean? That, that dominate in Washington and in New York. And, and, and it's like, it's, it's obnoxious and it's condescending, but it also does not, it just doesn't serve 
us well, you know? Um, it's not an accurate representation of what the society actually looks like. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, I think it's immensely important, you know, the kind of, the kind of organization, the kind of engagement that you're, you're talking about and like some of the most inspiring and impactful um, resistance movements of our time come from places that are totally overlooked. I think about like Standing Rock, Standing Rock Uprising, <laughs> like yeah. in the history of, you know, the world, in my opinion, it is like a, had a profound impact. I mean, there were people like, obviously it impacted this country in ways that um, are lasting. And of course there's, there's current struggles for, you know, indigenous freedom and to, to reclaim the land and water and protect the water and so on. But like, man, that, that there's still reverberations from Standing Rock and like people from all around the world, like indigenous people from around the world mobilized to Standing Rock, right? Yep. In, in, you know, like, you know, the, the whole, the Plains region is yeah. totally overlooked, disparaged, you know? The other thing is like, I think because of that, because of that kind of, um, these condescending, um, you know, elitist caricatures, you know, and particularly, I should say, I want to say, you know, of lib liberals, liberals kind of caricaturing, you know, um, Midwestern, uh, you know, working people. Um, it allows conservatives to step in and say, well, we represent <laughs> these people. And it's so, it's so abusive. It's like, you know, I think about West Virginia and, um, you know, coal miners in West Virginia or in Western Pennsylvania. Like, we never hear about these people until it's time to do something reactionary. Then all of a sudden the coal miner is the most important worker. And how dare you abandon, you know, how can we let down our coworkers? And it's like, y'all don't care. I mean, these people like generation after generation are dying of black lung and all kinds of, you know, horrendous diseases, the land is poisoned, you know, you don't care about them. And then all of a sudden they're useful when it comes to justifying, you know, coal or like fracking or, you know, something like utterly reactionary. Then all of a sudden you're interested yeah. <laughs> in rural people, you know, it is abusive uh, because people have been so beat down in the neoliberal era that, as you know, in some of these regions, like where we live, there's been so much deindustrialization that anything that looks like it's a better job than eight bucks an hour at the local fast food place. Hey, we're taking it. And, and they, yeah. you, you know, and it's like leveraging people's despair against them. And it's, it's, exactly. it is, it's, it's disgusting. And then the laws we have, of course, with all the state's rights, um, it's a race to the bottom, you know? So in Indiana, we're constantly telling people in Chicago, if you don't want to pay taxes, if you don't want right. regulation, if you want to buy as many guns as you want with no restrictions, right. come out to us, you know? And then that forces the, you know, the lawmakers in Illinois to go, well, wait a minute, maybe we got to adjust our taxes and maybe cut here, do some austerity here, because we don't want the middle class whites to be leaving the city because they, you know, it's, it's a, that whole race to the bottom and then playing each other off of each other is like really destructive. And anything for me at this point, especially in light of what's happened over the last four years and even the last week, anything that goes against trying to build solidarity is just like the most destructive thing right now. I mean, I think our side, and here I'm talking really broad, like yeah. liberal, progressive, left, radical, however we want to go down that line, like yeah. we really do need to create like a united front right now. Like there is no time for like sectarian dogmatism or like 
beating each other up over petty differences or like even past issues, you know, people like maybe we've worked together for 10 years and in 2014 we had a falling out over some electoral dispute. Like it's time to put all of that stuff aside in my view. I've, I've been thinking the same thing, like, you know, and I, I know, you know, I am not like innocent of <laughs> holding some dispute at some point yep. with someone, you know, yep. um, and I'm like, yo, we need to work it out because <laughs> we yeah. are, this is like, a, this is a rough situation. I mean, on one hand, like the promise is so big. Like I, I just, I, I keep thinking just one example, like, you know, last year when you had these like black led uprisings all across the country, I just, you know, there was a point at which like more than 70% of the U S population said they sympathized with black lives matter. And I was like, what? <laughs> like yeah. that, that explodes so many notions of, you know, who Americans are and what we think and all this stuff. And there is so much possibility there. So I don't want to say it's just doom and gloom, but the dangers are real. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? It yeah. is very bad. Um, and so, yeah, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a way. And um, I, I have to say, like, I've gotten, I've, I've been lucky enough to get to travel like a little bit, um, like totally through activist context, you know what I mean? Getting invited to, to yeah. speak someplace and just seeing how like in other places, like what, what a more, mature and um united left can look like and i'm like wow we have a lot to learn i mean it's it's not like it's not like i mean there are places in this world where you know folks progressives leftist liberals it's not it's not like they don't disagree with each other they they know when when it's time to mobilize together yeah you know yeah um we really have to figure that out i agree i think we will i the, the only silver lining I can see. Well, a few, one of them might be a fractured Republican party, which would be great for us. Um, but the other side is like, I do think, I mean, I've heard Sergio and I have heard from people, uh, non-identified, you know, pe just folks we grew up with over the last week. And I, if anything, this might've kind of lit a fire under people's butts in terms of like how serious the situation is. I think some people yeah. in some communities kind of get that inherently and knew what this was going to be four years ago. But yeah. I think now it's starting to hit a whole new wave of people who are going outside of like you were saying that sort of core, you know, outside to the periphery of like, I kind of identify with this stuff. And now they're saying, wait a minute, like something is going on that's fundamentally wrong and we have to do something about it. And, I think then it's up to us to mobilize those people and like show them, Hey, there is an alternative, you know, it doesn't have to be this or despair, apathy, sitting at home with cynicism, just hating everything. Exactly. Yeah. And like, and, and, you know, we play a role in that alternative, right? Because that's what, one of the things I've been really very worried about is, so you have like fascists on the march, right? And then what we are offered is that the solution is like the state. Don't worry, we're gonna bring in more cops. We're gonna pass more legislation that classifies more people as terrorists, you know? We're gonna put soldiers on the streets of DC. Don't you feel safe, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, that, and, and so it's like, there's two actors on that stage. You know, one is like the, the far right and the other is like the state. And it's like, what, what what I, I hope we can find, you know, for ourselves and kind of or re, refine because we, we did it last year and we've been doing it for several years, but like 
popular mobilization has to be, we have to lead this conversation, you know, and, and say, well, wait a minute, you know, um, more police are not going to make us safer, actually. And guess what? A bunch of the police are fascists, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, new laws. I don't, I, th- that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. I am interested though. I do think that there has to be a question around, well, two things. One is a question about what the state is. I mean, I think the yeah. real thing that we have to examine, and I come from the anti-war movement I was involved with was probably more influenced by like anarchist thinkers. So like yeah, yeah. my initial coming to was much more under that sort of like anarchist scope of, of viewing the world. That started to change. I think there's been several things that have changed that one has been learning more about climate change um, mm. and then speaking with friends overseas and trying to think about like at scale, what are the kinds of programs and institutions that would need to function in order to deal with a, a challenge that big at the same time, I think one of the other issues that came up was uh, the 2015-2016 Bernie campaign, where mm-hmm. it was like, oh, wow, like, after rejecting electoral politics for so long, I hated Bush, and then the Democrats yeah. took the House and Senate in 2006, didn't do shit, and then Obama, yeah. and I just, yeah. I was so done with anything electoral. 2016 yeah. hit, and I thought, wow, here are people, like, there's people coming into the movement that I had never met before that were just fresh and, like, new um, I don't want to ramble too much about this, but I do think that there's like a really interesting debate and conversation to be had on the left right now about what is our orientation to the state? Because some yeah. of, some of the conversation sometimes is also very different than like, say in our community, our city is one third black. Um, mm-hmm. we live 20 miles from Gary, Indiana, which remains one of the blackest cities in the country. Um, yeah. we're 40 miles from South Bend. And yep. even here, like the conversation say about something like defunding, it was mm-hmm. a non-issue for us because mm-hmm. there's not enough in our city budget to defund anything. It's like wow. there is no money to defund places like Gary or South Bend or Michigan City because the cops are already making shit wages and, you know, the, right. all the rest. And not on top of that, too, one of the differences, uh, I think, was even in the communities uh, particularly amongst, uh, say, older black people in our community here in Michigan City, yeah. they were asking for more police at a time right. when people were calling for less police. Right. And this was difficult for, like, people from the outside, like, yeah. leftists and progressives who, who would be like, oh, but, like, uh, people of color are just together, right? And it's right. like, oh, right. my goodness, like, right. you know, it's not a homogenous community. <laughs> There's a lot of nuances and contradictions and all of those things. And it, I think, started what a real interesting conversation would be, say, for us here in Michigan City. We obviously have an institutional, systemic, historical critique of policing, where it comes from and all the rest. Um, but also understanding that, like, in a community like this where we have a black police chief who's actually well-respected, like, this is somebody who um, prior was, like, the school kind of administration person. So, like, people know him. It's not like, oh this is a token person who just was right there for some reason. Like, no, he can like literally walk down any block in Michigan city and like go up to people's houses and be like, what's up? Like I went to high school with your mom, you know? Um, So it's like a different, how this plays out in different areas is also super interesting to me. So like even here in Indiana, and I don't want to ramble too much because I'm, I'm, I want to get ideas from you. Um, Even here in Indiana, it was like, well, 
the conversation in Indianapolis might look a lot different than it does in Michigan City, might look a lot different than it does in Gary. And I think one of the challenges we found over the last nine months was trying to apply like a sort of blanket um, policy to a whole bunch of places that generally would agree. Like if we had a police force that was disproportionately funded compared to our social services, we know there would be plenty of people in the community who would be like, look, let's shift the money around. But that didn't exist. So for us, it's like, what does this look like? And also even state intervention, and this is the last thing I'll say, after doing enough local work in Indiana, we quickly found out the limitations of municipal politics in a state that's trifecta controlled by Republicans at the House, Senate, and uh, at the governorship. And they've passed so many preemptive laws downstate that like now at the municipal level, we can't raise the minimum wage. We can't raise property taxes, uh, income tax, corporate tax. We can't uh, do our own like environmental regulations if we want to. Like we are very hemmed up by like what we can do by state law. So then that's where like federal programs or big national programs come into play because not only do we not have the resources, But our internal political situation in a place like Indiana is so dysfunctional and so far to the right that if we don't have that sort of federal government state response, the ability for us to even get the kind of goods and services that we need is like virtually impossible. And now, if it were up to me, we would be doing that plus cooperation Jackson type organizing plus electoral organ, you know, but you only have so much time and capacity. And I think as all organizers and activists, that seems to be like the primary question all the time for us. Like, what are the priorities? What's going to get more? What's going to expand your base? What's going to help you build power? And what's going to make a real difference in people's lives so they actually feel like they can come back and be a part of something that's winning? That yeah. was a long response to something you no. said. And I've <laughs> but it's so real. I mean, it's, it, is, it is exactly, I think, what we should be discussing. And it really, you know, it points to... I mean, okay, so this might seem like a little counterintuitive, but so on one hand, like, I think that that one is just, it's just, you know, this conversation for me is a reminder that this is like a massive country, you know what I mean? And like, there are some shared conversations we're having, but there's a lot of variation, you know what I mean? In terms of what things look like. Um, And I think that we really need a politics that can speak to that diversity and that range. And that's like, an invitation, you know, to people from all these different corners to say, let, let me, okay, we can, we can talk about neoliberalism. Let me tell you what it looks like here. Yep. Because it's different. And so Boston is one of the richest cities in the world, right? Where I live. Right. 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 And yet there's like poverty, you know what I mean? Like it's right. different or like, you know, there's people who can't access higher education here, but there's like literally dozens and dozens of colleges and universities. <laughs> it's a, you know, for, so for here, it's very different because it's like abundance that's like very visible in some ways, you know, hidden in other ways, of course, as it yeah. always is. But, but it's also, it's like inaccessible, even though it's like literally it surrounds us. Right. That's different from what you're describing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that, that kind of zoomed in perspective is super important. And at the same time, I'm reminded of like, just that basic point that we are all interconnected. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when we talk about redistributing the wealth, I mean, it's, it's, it's very easy for me to imagine, like, all of the wealth in the financial district in downtown Boston, you know what I mean? Or, or like, you know, there, there's this hedge fund manager um, here uh, named Seth Clareman. 
he he personally owns, I believe it's a billion dollars of Puerto Rico's debt. Like this one guy, you know what I mean? And I know where his office is. I know where the building is, you know, like there's wealth right here. Right. right? Um, and so it's very easy for me to imagine redistributing that here and, you know, to Puerto Rico or, <laughs> or yeah. whatever. But like, you know, for, for places in this country and around this world that have been systematically neglected, have been, you know, whose economies have been structured just so they can be, the economy takes from these places. Then redistributing the wealth, it can't just be like you and your town redistributing your 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 budget, right? It's yeah. got to be like all this wealth, right? Yep. Um, and then we can have that conversation on a global level because, you know, even in the, you know, um, it's like, it, it's funny. I, I remember when I was, um, I had a, a, a classmate and we would talk about um, what it means to be, um you know, there's these terms, you know, core and periphery, you know, where we talk about the world system, you can be at the core of the system or the periphery of the system. And we would talk, you know, she's Emmanuel um, Wallerstein, isn't it? Wallerstein, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, you know, she's a, um, you know, she's a, um, a Latina from Lubbock, Texas, you know, and I'm like a black guy from upstate New York. We talk about like, well, what does it mean to be at the periphery of the core? You know what I mean? Yep. Which I think a lot of us in this country experience. Yep. Then you zoom out and it's like, well, you know, I mean, there's there's the wealth of the U.S., which has not just been generated within the U.S., but has been extracted from all around the world. So it's like that thing that we all really need each other. And I think that the challenge for, for those of us who are organizers who have this kind of big vision, like a, a, an extensive vision, is like, how do you, how do you, how do you break it down so that people understand that even if you've never met somebody in Palestine or Bangladesh, you know, I promise you, your fate is bound with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, it really is the thing that if we all, if we all rise, if, if one of us rises, we'll all rise. And then when we, when one of us falls, we really all fall, mm-hmm. you know? And, and there's a real finesse that I think we have to develop to be able to have that conversation. But I think we got to figure it out. Cause that, cause that's, that's, that's the world, you know? And the last 10 months as horrific as they've been much like last Wednesday, if I could find any silver lining, it might be precisely what you're saying, which is like this ability to generate consciousness around interconnectedness. Because if anything, I think over the last 10 months, people have sort of seen like, oh shit, if my neighbor doesn't have a mask or if this person doesn't have healthcare or if this person doesn't get vaccinated, then that means I'm at risk. And I mean, it's terrible that that's how I think sometimes we learn things, but I'm also guilty of that. It took me going to the war in Iraq to kind of snap out of it and become politicized. And you know, I, I don't think, in other words, I think all organizers and activists have to intentionally try and drum that up. Like, we can't just assume it will just happen organically. But at the same time, I do think it's a great opportunity to really inject that kind of, like, solidarity, collectivity, that interconnectedness that we all rely on each other. And in a culture that's so hyper-individualistic and just yeah. ruthlessly atomized, like, we're just everybody just you know feeling disconnected from their community and now even worse under the pandemic yeah that that to me might be one of those silver linings you know where people really see that my fate is intertwined with yours and i just can't kind of hunker down at my house and take care of me and my family 
and let everything else just kind of go to shit because it's not going to help anyone. I think that that's real. I do think to some degree that's real. It's so, it's so, it's so real. And it's like, we have, it's like, we're, we're, we're kind of faced with this choice of like, yeah, we can, you know, when you have this pandemic that's threatening all of our lives, you can go, you know, in the very American, like individual, you could be like, I'm going to hoard all the toilet paper or whatever. That's one direction you go in. (laughs) Or you could be like, wow, we read like, you know, yeah, it's not just that we all have to wear masks, but it's like, you know, if there are, if there are refugee camps in this world where just masses of people are utterly abandoned and, and yet, and yet, no matter how abandoned you are, we, we really are all connected. Nothing. I mean, that's the, that's the, the lesson of the, of the coronavirus. Nothing stays where it is. Yep. So if, if, if these refugee camps exist and people there don't have access to healthcare, we will never be rid of this thing. Right. It will literally never, it can't, it can't possibly end, yep. you know? And, and I, yeah, I mean, I think kind of getting at what you're saying, like, you know, I, I, I want to, believe and i think that this is true for for many of us and can be true for more of us that like the humanity alone of the people in those camps is enough to commit to fighting you know alongside them but even if that doesn't if you're not sold on that know this you will be you know your livelihood will be threatened you will never be safe yeah right if they're not safe it's a tough balance. It's something that i learned during the during my anti-war activism was like this ability to bounce between challenging people's morals and sort of ethical predispositions like hey like what 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 does the dominant society say but then how do you feel about this and look what we're doing to people but at the same time I think one of the things I should have done earlier in my anti-war activism was really connecting it in a real way for people here I mean so in other words projects like the uh, national priorities um I believe it's called National Priorities Project. Yeah, like, that's an awesome project. You know, like, these projects that really show people, like, hey, in your community here, as soon as that project started, I, any anti-war speech I gave, I was using their data. So it's like awesome. going to small towns throughout the Midwest or really throughout the country. I mean, like, hey, here in Bridgman, Michigan, you could have this, this, right. and this, you know, but we're spending it on war. And I would find, you know, you get some of the people in the audience who would be horrified just morally about what was going on. But you'd also have people who are there and bound up in whatever ideological things they're bound up in and, you know, kind of thinking, well, yeah, but what happens if we cut the budget or what happens if we do this? And really showing people, I think, made a difference. Um, Let me, because I know I'm already taking a lot of your time and I want to get to your scholarship. I want to get to like the things you're working on and what we need to know, like, because I'm I'm here to also learn from you today. And I want to really, really ask uh, a couple things we mentioned in our email, you had, yeah. you had noted that you could see this year being sort of a turning point for the war on terror. And I was very interested in what you meant by that. And now I think most people know the context. We have Joe Biden coming into office. I'm sure people like you and I aren't pleased about that happier, <laughs> happier than it being, uh, Donald Trump. But then just today, I believe they announced that Samantha powers was going to be one right. Of, right. So <laughs> You know, we take the good with the bad every day. We just keep rolling with punches. Um, What do you make of the incoming Biden administration wrapped up with like the war on terror and sort of where we go from here? It's been, it will be, you know, 20 years pretty soon here. It's so wild. It's so intense. Um, And um, 
you know, I'll say that last year, you know, um, early in the year, I ended up when I was, I was in DC and I ended up going to this um, Senate hearing on the US occupation of Afghanistan. And it was super interesting because it was, it was organized by senators who want to end that war, you know? And they had military officers, you know, army officers testifying about how they have lied to Congress over years, how they have, you know, when, um, when Congress or other uh, civilians charged with oversight or whatever have gone on delegations to Afghanistan, they have taken them to the places where they've wanted to take them to show them what they've wanted to show them and make sure that the money keeps on flowing. And these were admissions that should have been, you know, scandalous. And instead it was just another day in Washington. And I thought, yo, these are senators who are saying this war should end and yet it got funded again and again and again. So, you know, the, the, the fact is, you know, and, and whatever people tuning into this won't be surprised to, you know, but like there's just abundant evidence that the war on terror not only has been just catastrophic for humanity in the various countries where it is waged, which is, which are so many, like so, so, so many, um, it has been catastrophic for people here in any number of ways, the, the unreal surveillance regime, particularly targeting Muslim folks, um, uh, but also it has been a context to militarize the border. Um, you know, we've had, you know, the Muslim ban flows right from the war on terror. Obviously all the policing, uh, you know, feeds into mass incarceration and inevitably disproportionately affects black folks and this whole society at large, right? So it's been a disaster, but it also has just been ineffective, like for, for a stated goal of fighting terrorism has just failed spectacularly. And, you know, I, I think that's the, the, when I think about like, what is it about this time that offers some opportunity? Yeah, like you, I'm not um, particularly inspired by the Biden administration, you know, in terms of what he has said, who he's appointing, or, you know, he's not saying really that he wants to end the, the war on terror. But there's a bunch of things that have happened. And one of those is like, just in the past few weeks, we've gotten this just undeniable evidence of the failure of the war on terror and the kind of homeland security regime to do what is supposed to be its most important stated goal, which is like defend the nation. Two ways. Obviously, there's what happened last week at the Capitol, which I don't even have to explain, you know, the level of, I mean, at least failure and at most collaboration, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll see what investigations reveal or whatever. But let's just say the Capitol was invaded not by Al-Qaeda, you know, not not by, you know, for, you know but by Americans. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. But then, you know, before that, this, this um, Christmas bombing of Nashville, you know, I mean, by a man who was on the radar of the police, who knew he was making weapons, who announced that he was going to detonate this bomb. And yet these police who received the police training that all the police departments, you know, of, of cities across this country have, have received, have received the weapons from the Pentagon that police departments across the country have, have received. Um, and with all of that, they couldn't prevent this bombing after they were warned. I mean, what an indictment of the whole regime of Homeland Security and the war on terror. 
And, you know, there are already forces who are saying, especially in light of last week, that this is why we need more police, you know, more soldiers, more, a bigger Pentagon budget. Um, but I think that a lot of people are going to say, wait a minute, this makes no sense. So that's one thing. It's just like the facts, the facts have always been on their side, on our side, but they're kind of undeniable, I think, for a larger number of people. So that's really good. Um, and then, you know, there have been, um, there, there are these, these particular cracks in particular parts of the war on terror. Um, when I think, for example, about the war that the U.S. has carried out and supported in Yemen, you know, the U.S. has had its own operations in Yemen, but the U.S. also arms and funds Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which are, have waged this catastrophic war on Yemen. And there has been, um, you know, there isn't nearly enough conversation about it in the society, but the people who are talking about it are disgusted about it. Um, you know, there have been great editorials in the New York Times and the Washington Post about why this thing should end. And finally, even in Congress, you know, particularly when Saudi Arabia is, is very openly, you know, murdering dissenters, you know, and, and dissidents and things like that. Um, there's some people in Congress who are like, okay, maybe we should question our funding of this thing. So there's an opportunity there. And, and, and of course, I should say that those efforts were vetoed by Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, but I think now we should say, all right, Trump's gone. So what's good, Congress? Let's stop this thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there's any number of places where... Um, uh, I think there are some possibilities because the the idea of ending the endless wars is popular in the U.S. population. Yeah. What's very what's maddening is that Donald Trump has positioned himself as the one who ends these wars because and, it's, and, and a big part of that is because the Democrats have been so committed to them, yeah. you know. But there's another piece of the puzzle, which is that there's a growing number of Democrats in Congress, not not huge numbers, but very significant and very vocal yeah. <laughs> numbers of folks who are willing to be critical of the of U.S. military spending, who are willing to criticize U.S. support for Israel, U.S. Uh, military aid for Israel, which is very much wrapped up in the whole war on terror. So there's some possibilities there. Um, and then the last thing, which is a little complicated, is that the U.S. really... Um, you know, the question of U.S. power on the world stage, I think the U.S. is facing some real challenges um, to maintain that supremacy. It has been number one since World War II, um, especially after the Soviet Union. Then number two fell, you know, the Soviet Union right. fell, and then it was kind of a, a, a singular number one. And it's not the same picture that it was 20 years ago. I mean, if, if the war, if the whole idea of the war on terror was to cement U.S. supremacy, well, actually, we got a rising China. We got, a, you know, in many ways, a, um, Iran, um, you, you know, the, these, these states that the U.S. has deemed enemies, which we should not see as enemies, but the U.S. says that these are competitors and whatever. Yeah. And a they fractured are, EU. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All, all these things that the U.S. kind of, it's, it's, not, it's not in favor of U.S. power. Um, and what that means is that there are people who, run US empire who are like, all right, we got to figure this out. And, and, I don't, and I don't think they agree on what to do. And I think, that, I think that in so many ways, the Trump administration is the expression of 
a lack, they, they don't, they don't, there's no one person at the steering wheel. They don't know where to go. And so, you know, Obama's like, you know what, I'm going to put more um, naval ships and weapons in the Pacific and, you know, rally all of our Asian allies against China. That's going to stop China. Well, it didn't. So Trump's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a trade war and I'm going to, you know, um, pull out of all these multilateral agreements and just, you know, negotiate these transactional, you know, bilateral agreements or what, what he, he does all kinds of others. You know, I'm going to be tough on Iran and use the maximum pressure, you know, thing. I'm going to threaten North Korea with annihilation and then I'm going to try to make a deal with Kim Jong-un. You know, he's trying to figure out all this stuff to save U.S. empire and the U.S. empire is not stronger after Trump, you know? So what that means is there's a conversation in Washington where some people, like Hillary Clinton, is like, look, maybe we should cut the military budget. She doesn't want to cut it, though, to make it less deadly. She wants to make it more. She's like, she's like this is not efficiently deadly enough. <laughs> right. 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 I think that we have an opportunity, though, to say, Oh, did I hear cut the military budget? Yeah, we should, but not to not to you know prepare for China, but actually to stop these wars. You know, we want to center the experiences of Somalis and Yemenis and you know Afghans and Iraqis. And by the way, we are for building international cooperation. You know, with folks in China and Iran and elsewhere. So I, I just think that you know they're having one conversation, but we can kind of elbow our way into the room and um, have a different one. No, hundred percent, man. I think the point you're bringing up about uh, the fractured nature of the ruling class is very important because all too often, I think progressive left liberal activists see the ruling class sometimes as this like very coherent uh, entity that always knows what's it, what it's doing and it's always rational and it always gets what it wants. And that's just not how the world works. And I think yeah. right now, yeah. I was going to ask, because this kind of leads into the question about support for Israel and the Iran nuclear deal, but I'm wondering if you also see an opportunity there because the ruling class is not as coherent as it maybe was once in the past. So like even moving into the Biden administration, re-engaging with Iran, um, really, I don't know if I could say holding Israel accountable at the, at the least to stop facilitating uh, Israel's brutalities and crimes. I mean, is it, are you thinking sort of the same thing that there's like kind of a similar opening because the ruling class is so fractured right now? Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, it's a convergence of a number of things, right? Because the, the other piece that, um, you know, I didn't mention in those, those factors is like, we also last year had this, like, you know, it's like weeks of uprising that were saying things like defund the police, which kind of, you know, which, which, was an entry point to a bigger conversation about like, where do the police come from, you know? And, um, but also what are our budgets spent on? And I think those of us who have an eye to like US violence, not just in the United States, but around the world can say, oh, hey, if we're talking about, you know, the investment that we have in state violence rather than people's needs, I wanna talk to you about not only defunding the police, but defunding the Pentagon, right? Um, so that, that converges, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that, um, yeah, they're having, they, they, they're trying to work their stuff out in the ruling class. And then I think that more and more people are kind of primed to have a different conversation. I mean, and that's, what's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the really interesting things about last week is, you know, this response of like, wow, the Capitol Police definitely treated those white fascists differently than they would have Black Lives Matter protesters. 
Even Joe Biden said that, you know, Joe Biden is not a BLM, you know, supporter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was so undeniable that he had to say something about it, you know, or he would have seen, seemed, you know, totally out of touch. Um, but that's how, that's how just um, almost universal, you know, that sentiment was for so many people. There's an opportunity there, you know, there's an opportunity to have a, a higher level of conversation then. 100%. No, I totally agree. What do you think specifically in terms of, let's say Biden's first hundred days, yeah. what are you expecting foreign policy wise and what openings do you think could come up? I'm assuming they'll announce that they want to re-engage in the Paris Treaty. I'm assuming they'll also want to re-engage in, in the Iran nuclear deal. Is, are you thinking sort of the same thing? And if, if you have additional items that, that you're assuming they'll address, please, please mention them. Yeah, I think that they will speak to those things for sure. Um, and, you know, I think that that's great or whatever that, I mean, th those things should very obviously be, um, you know, <laughs> rejoined or whatever, right. but they are also like woefully inadequate. And I, I think that there's another, there's another example where the people running this country can have one conversation and say, see, we're rejoining the Paris deal. And it's like, yo, that deal was not sufficient. If we're talking about the Back level then of, then it wasn't right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Or like, you know, if they're like, okay, we want to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. You know, it's like, okay, well, y'all have parked aircraft carriers off the coast of Iran for a year straight. How about pulling those back? How about all those additional thousands of soldiers that you put in the Middle East, you know, explicitly to counter Iran, which were on top of the soldiers that were already there. Yeah. How about, how about reversing that? You know what I mean? And then how about suspending these sanctions immediately so i think that we're gonna have to to, to push um in those ways and then there's things that are not that i don't think biden is um i don't know what they're thinking about but i think that we should make issues you know and so one thing that comes to mind is, is um uh these huge weapons deals you know um trump in the, the, the last days of the trump administration um, he finally got, you know, what they would consider a foreign policy win, which is um, uh, kind of brokering a bunch of normalization deals between Israel and various um, states, you know, in the, in the Middle East, North Africa. Um, and these were very obvious um, tit for tat kind of agreements, you know, where a state would normalize its relations with Israel and in, in, you know, in a very transactional way, they would get something um, uh, in response. And so for the United Arab Emirates, what they got out of the deal, they got a, a number of things, but one thing is a $23 billion weapons deal. You know, that's what the Trump administration promised. Now he wasn't able to actually make that sale go through before he left office. So now, you know, it's up to uh, a Biden State Department and a new Congress to approve those things. I think that we should push and say, this deal should not go through. No more weapons to the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Israel, by the way, or Egypt. I mean, I, I got a long list. Yeah, you know no, I, mean? I was just going to say perhaps even that smaller issue that might not be as inflaming right away for people politically to lead into the conversation about Saudi Arabia, which to be honest with you, like you said, with public opinion polls, I think one of the mistakes, I don't know what they're thinking at the top echelon, but I do think that like, there are activists and organizers sometimes who make the mistake of underplaying where people are coming from, like, or assuming that people aren't as critical as they are 
Mm. I kind of operate from the opposite assumption, which is that if you, most people actually know what time it is. And if you just give them like maybe a little, like few little ingredients that they could put, put together, like anyone we've taught about Saudi Arabia, they go, wait a minute, we shouldn't support these people. And we should, right. or the government, we should not support right. that regime. And, and right. it's like very clear for them. So I think that's like something to keep in mind is like, Sometimes the policy seems far out there, but the but the the sentiment is there right now. I mean, even in the on the right, I mean, you know, to what extent you can organize right. with folks is a different question. But like, there is a sentiment in this country that we don't want to be at in for uh, forever wars. There doesn't right. seem to be an appetite for new wars at all. Right. <laughs> um, and that, I mean, I think all of that, like you're saying, really plays. Um, plays in our favor. And I was going to ask you to wrapped up with Biden wrapped up with Iran and Israel and, and everything else we've talked about. I just recently saw, I think yesterday or the day before, you'll know this. I think Israel just launched different airstrikes in Eastern Syria. Um, yeah, I hadn't seen that actually. yeah he, they had just, I think launched two different strikes yesterday. I could look it up real quick, but I believe it was yesterday, if not the day before killed Iranian fighters. They killed some Iraqi fighters. Wow. Um, and then of course, uh, uh, Syrians as well. And I guess the question I have is what do you think the sort of the longer term reconfiguration of power here? It's like under Trump, as you saw, we like, we saw this decline in, in us hegemony for any number of reasons. I mean, he was doing a great job of tearing apart us empire, but for all the wrong reasons. Right. Um, <laughs> Right. Kind of like the Ron Paul people, like they're opposed to interventions, exactly. but for all the wrong reasons. Um, right. Right. I, I guess I wonder, what do you think from, so we've been talking about like that, which is what we're mostly interested in, that like bottom up power, what we can influence. But I'm also interested, what's the sense you get from just allies that we have or former allies or, or really non-aligned nations in, in the world who are kind of looking at what's happening, saying, where do we go? Because the last time I was in Australia, mm. it was a fascinating conversation mm. between, on the one side, people who say culturally, politically, we're connected to uh, Great Britain and the United States. Yeah. On the other hand, economically, we wholly depend upon the Philippines, Vietnam, South Korea, and most importantly, China. And they're yeah. really like in this in-between area where they're going, wait a minute, we've got the U.S. bases here. But yeah. our economy wholly depends on on what's happening in China. What's the sense you get amongst sort of U.S. allies moving into this this era with Biden? I know that's a huge question for the yeah, yeah, for no. the last part of our conversation, but yeah. it's a great question though. And it's you know I think one thing is there is a um, there is this international system, you know that that was built after World War II that has governed just ways of doing things, um, you know, with all sorts of institutions like the United Nations, um, you know, a bunch of international law, uh, financial institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, um, you know, institutions like NATO, various alliances, right? And they, the various um, states of the world, I mean, that, 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 that set of systems has been pretty disastrous for, for um, I would say the vast majority of the world's population regard, you know, that which includes people in wealth, so-called wealthy countries. Yeah. Um, but of course, some countries have been hit much harder than, than, than others. Right. Um, that said, 
the U.S.'s allies or the, 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 the states that the U.S. looks to as allies, they, they kind of liked that system. I mean, <laughs> Europe, Australia, um, Japan, <laughs> yeah. they liked, you know, a system where, where um, there were these kind of international multilateral institutions as opposed to every country for themselves negotiating on a bilateral transactional basis, which is the Trump way of doing things. So on one hand, I think that a bunch of these sites to kind of like a bunch, a bunch of these states will say, oh, thank goodness, you know, this will be back to normal. Kind, kind of what Biden, I mean, in, in so many ways, when Biden says, you know, it's going to go back to normal, America's ready to sit back at the head of the table. He's not just talking to the domestic audience, he's talking to his allies, right? Um, but the, the kind of... Um, the real contradictions of the world economy and world politics. I mean, those are, those are real and it's complicated. Um, and so, you know, what exactly happens? I don't know. I think that countries like Australia um, are, are in a very complicated position. Um, the United States, because it has enjoyed such hegemony has been able to say, look, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to call the shots and you're, you're going to listen to us. And will that continue forever? I don't know. You know, <laughs> like if you're if you're Australia and your economy is dependent on China, yeah, uh, it's 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 complicated. Or in, in in you know in a different way, Europe too. I mean, it's like that. There's there's just, there's just a different kind of reality. Um, I guess the main thing I have to say is whatever solutions they come up with will not be good because. Um, all of these states are militarizing, yep. you know, yep. um, all of them are militarizing their borders. Um, and all of them are pursuing more or less, you know, different degrees of neoliberal uh, kind of agendas, you know, agendas that um, continue, uh, you know, petroleum based economy and extractive economy, you know. And so we already know, like, like the, the, what, what we have, um, what we have been experiencing in terms of, you know, more armed conflict, more like displacement of people en masse through environmental catastrophes, through wars, um, through economic just devastation, um, the inability to make a living in, you know, whole parts of Africa, um, you know, et cetera, you know, and, and, and then states respond to that, not by saying, wow, our policies have displaced people, Let's welcome displaced people in and make sure they're taken care of with the abundant wealth that we have extracted from them. Right. The opposite. Walls on the border, you know, um, you know, stronger militaries to keep them out. And so, so, so it's like that is the we've already gotten the preview of the 21st century. And that's basically what they have in store. Um, and I think that Biden wants to more or less continue, you know, those systems where much, you know, he's not going to call Haiti a shithole country. But he's gonna. But the but the actual policy, I don't think is gonna be much different, you know. Right. Um, so you know we've got a real challenge, which is like how do we build solidarity across borders amongst ordinary people? Um, and it's it's a, it's especially complicated because there's existing. You know, I what I think about all the wars the U.S. currently has going on. Um, and the need to build solidarity with, you know, folks in Somalia and throughout the Middle East and throughout, throughout Africa and throughout, you know, but, but then they've got future wars planned, right? right? 
And it's like, all right, how do we, I mean, there's some really great organizing that is happening um, to try to build solidarity with folks in China. You know, there's, there's actually some really, I heard some really inspiring stories early last year where um, on the very local level, there were these, um, there were some cities that, U.S. cities that had like sister cities in China. Yeah. Right? Yep. Like where, where they were hit by coronavirus for earlier. And we're like, well, let's exchange some PPE. You know what I mean? Yeah. Things like that are really hopeful, you know? So I think that it, it, it's like you were saying, like what we do locally and regionally, you know, really can matter when we're talking about having a, moving things in a different direction globally. But, but then I think it's, it's that much more important for those of us who do have that like global outlook to really promote that in this country. And the, you know, the last, my last point, I just want to say like, it, it goes, it goes to um, how much effort there is to prevent that kind of transnational consciousness. I'm just thinking about the, the, the attack on the Capitol. You know, there were so many U.S. officials who said, you know, what happened in the Capitol, that happens in third world nations. Right. Yeah, that happens in banana republics. Um, and the whole idea is to say, we have one way of living and they have another way of living. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't accept this here. That's acceptable there. Obscuring the state violence that and, and the, the, the far right violence that people here live with and have lived with literally for the entire history of this country um, called the United States, but also obscuring the role that the United States plays in fomenting the violence over there, right? I mean, like, like think about, like, you know, this, this should be a time of like real reckoning where we're like, whoa, let's look at this society. And you have these powerful people stepping in to say, hold on, we're gonna restore, you know, America. And part of that means this us and them thing. Right. So we've really, like, we as in, you know, progressives, you know, folks on the left, we've really got to combat that nationalism and, and build internationalism. Well, if you noticed, I, that's a great way to end, and we might just cut it off, so I'll probably edit this comment out. But I wanted to just mention this to you. But um, if you noticed, a lot of the videos that were featured on Wednesday did not just feature American flags. So another thing I think for the left to keep in mind mm -hmm. is that the right has been organizing internationally for yes. a long time, and they see themselves as, an, as bound up in an international fight. I know Sergio's good friends live in Italy. Uh, he went to grad school out in Europe as well. His family's from Ukraine. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, Steve Bannon's opening up a university in Italy. You know, it's a private a think tank, private think tank in Italy. He's about to open up another one in Hungary. You wow. know, we've got Nigel Farage, we've got the Le Pens yeah. of the world, we've got the yeah. Golden Dawns of the world. I mean, I just think, I'm, I'm reading a book anyway, I'll, I will leave you with this, but I'm not sure if you've ever read Kathleen Ballou's Bring the War Home. No. Mm -mm. It's an excellent book about the history of the white power movement and it being sort of inherently wrapped up with the post-Vietnam generation of veterans who came home and then started to arm themselves. Um, wow. In my opinion, it is one of the most important books people can read right now in this context, and especially following last Wednesday. But one of the points she makes, of course, is that in the 80s, it was like right at the moment that the left was fragmenting because of internal division and government surveillance and infiltration was right at the time that the white power movement was dropping a lot of their fragmentation and, and sort wow. of, you know, um, 
sectarian division and saying, hey, we have to come together as a movement. It wow. takes off from there. You will not be disappointed by that book. Yeah, I mean, I really you. like I right now people are I'm sure as they're asking you, like, what are you reading? What do you think? This is like number one on my list. So, awesome. yeah. Hey, man, thank you so much for your time. This was an enjoyable conversation. Yeah, such a pleasure. I'm, I'm really grateful to just be in touch with you, too. And like, I, you know, like shout out to the work you're doing, um, you know, in Michigan City, because it it reminds me of what I was talking about in my childhood, like this place of social justice, you know, our little, our little city, Yeah. you know, like, and, and in some ways there's more possibility, you know, in, in like, I, I think about this, like in, in Albany, these activists had at some point gotten a building and I'm like, there is like in the city of Boston, it is, there's no way <laughs> like a bunch of just get a building. You know what it's I mean? It's funny you say that. Cause when we opened this place, we had friends in Chicago who were like, you should open a place in Chicago. And we're like, do you know how much our community right. center costs here? We're like, it costs $600 a month to rent this place. That's and they're just, wild. and it's 1500 square feet. So wow. it's like, we have a storefront, like this is a fake wall behind me, but this is like a big uh-huh. open uh, storefront that's 1500 square feet in the front. Sergio lives in an apartment and I have an apartment in wow. the back and like for the whole building, it's 1500 bucks a month. Wow. And it's like, you know, people <laughs> like in Chicago, they'd be like, yeah, that'd be about eight, 10 grand a month. I'm like, oh, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, you're very right, man. And the challenge we face is like exactly what you said, which is if these folks locally, like we can do as much as we can locally. If it's not connected to national and international movements, it'll be for naught. And yeah. if those international and national movements don't start to connect, like at the granular level with like these yeah. differences and so on. I have a hard time seeing how, I, in other words, we need all of it, man. Yes. We need yes, all of it. Completely agree. Hey, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Likewise. No, this is really. Let's like, be in touch. Yeah, definitely. Please, please. Keep, cool. keep in touch. Beautiful. Take, Take care. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll see you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C-Media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.